Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divinity. I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thank you for joining us, and we hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and maybe even entertain you a little bit as we go. So, we are right in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, if you are uh, reading along with our our gospel reading plan, reading through all four gospels in 90 days. Um, that's one chapter of the gospels a day, beginning on January 1, Matthew chapter 1, which means today you read, or you will read, sorry, I should specify, I'm recording this uh, on January 11th, um, so this is the day you read Matthew chapter 11. Today's podcast is actually going to focus on the two chapters leading up to that, though, but first... Uh, because I didn't really give you this last week, I spent a lot of time going over Bible translations and things like that, uh, which you know I, I can nerd out on for a really long time, so thank you for indulging me. Uh, but, but this week we'll talk about actually some of the background of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, now, to be clear, right, we have names associated with all four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, but you may have noticed... None of the four Gospels actually claim in the text who wrote them, right? So all of Paul's letters will, will actually say Paul's name somewhere in there. He, he claims to have written them uh, in the letter. But the Gospels don't do that. So where did these names come from? Well, we, we base our assumptions of the authorship of these Gospels on the tradition of the church. And... Um, that may sound kind of flimsy, but actually when you when you begin to examine uh, the, the traditional beliefs about who authored each of the Gospels, what you find is that very, very early on in the life of the church, um, there is total, total uni- unanimous agreement on who wrote each of the four Gospels. In fact, I'm not aware of any point in church history when there was any real dispute over who uh, wrote each of those Gospels until very, very recently. Like, literally, until the last, you know, 100 years or so, um, when some weird things started happening in in uh, biblical scholarship and people began to cast some doubts. But, but up until that point, there was no real argument over who wrote which gospel. And, and that, to me, suggests um, that that tradition is extraordinarily reliable. Um, so we have that. Now, part of, of why I think that tradition is so trustworthy is that in the ancient world, any kind of published text was, was already rare enough. And it was extremely unusual for a document the size of one of the Gospels to be published, to be written, to be circulated um, anonymously. So it is a, it's a certainty that the early church, the earliest people who were receiving these Gospels and reading them and teaching from them and sharing them, it is a certainty that those people knew who wrote each one. And they preserved that memory well over time. We tend to assume that um, information that is not preserved in writing is unreliable, right? You, you all had that moment in school probably where 
your your teacher had you play the telephone game, right? And you all lined up, and uh, the first person in line was was told a word or a phrase, and they had to pass it along by whispering it into the ear of each person next to them. And by the time you get to the end of the line, it's totally unrecognizable. And we're kind of taught that 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 is um, that is why the writing down of information is so important because it preserves it accurately because when you, when you just are passing it along from person to person, there's always a distortion of the information. Um, and the thing is, that's just not true. It's not true. What has been proven time and time again by historians and archaeologists and anthropologists is that particularly in the ancient world, uh, in, in societies where um, literacy is not actually common. Information passed along purely by word of mouth is extraordinarily accurate. They are extremely good at preserving information in that way. We... we we found this time and time again. There are uh, all kinds of examples, even from you know modern tribes where people generally don't read and write, uh, where the preservation of history through storytelling and and that sort of thing uh, is incredibly accurate. So much so that I would say it's it's probably just as accurate as writing it down. Um, because if there's one thing you learn when you begin to study history, it's that just because something is written down doesn't mean it's accurate. So the, the tradition of who wrote what gospel, I think we can rely on it pretty well. Um, and so we can safely assume, I believe, that this gospel was indeed written by Matthew the tax collector. Um, now, it is by far, by far, the most frequently quoted of the four gospels in the early church. Um, Matthew and Mark are, are generally believed to be kind of the two earliest of the Gospels that are written with Luke and John coming a bit later. Um, but even once they're all four in circulation, Matthew's the most popular one. It's the one that's used the most. Uh, and so it's arguably been the most influential in shaping uh, the church and the church's teaching and the church's culture over time. And so it has this really profound influence on uh, particularly the life of the early church. And, and it also has this really deep re reliance on the Old Testament. And it's for those reasons that it's actually positioned first in the New Testament. Mark is written earlier. Mark is the oldest of the Gospels. And and there's, again, there's, there's pretty much a unanimous consensus amongst biblical scholars that Matthew very clearly at times is using the Gospel of Mark as source material. Like he's, he's using Mark to kind of check himself as he writes down these stories and make sure he remembers the details properly. Um, and, and, and so Matthew's not the first gospel written, but it's the first in, in the order of the gospels because it, it forms this really nice bridge between the Old Testament and the New. Uh, and so because this gospel quotes the Old Testament so extensively, it, it played a really vital role in helping the early church to understand how to approach the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And, and that's huge because, you know, when these Gospels were first written and first circulated, they were not considered Scripture. Uh, 
for for a long time in the early church, the only scriptures they they had, the only the only book they truly understood to be scripture was the same scriptures that the Jews had. Um, and that meant that they needed something which would help them understand how to read, interpret, and apply those scriptures to their lives faithfully in light of what they believed about Jesus. This is why Paul's letters became so important. It's why the Gospels became so important. Um, and, and, it, and pretty rapidly they were canonized as scripture, and, and, but, it, but literally... From the time of Jesus' death to the time that we, we arrived at the biblical canon that we have now was like something around 400, 500 years. It took a long time to arrive at the Bible that we know today. And even then, actually, that Bible would have included the books of the Apocrypha, which most of our modern Bibles in the Protestant church no longer do. Um, that's a separate podcast. Really interesting history there. Nonetheless, right, so when they were canonizing scripture, when they were deciding how to put these gospels together, they recognized that Matthew had played a huge role in helping the early church understand how to read the scriptures of the Old Testament in the light of what Jesus did. So uh, it's, it's a really important gospel. Now it's widely believed this gospel was written sometime between 80 and 90 AD. So we're talking, you know, 50 to 60 years after Jesus's crucifixion. And again, people will, will point at this large gap of time between the when, when the Gospels are believed to have been written and the events that they describe as, as proof that they're unreliable. Uh, but that, that, frankly, is a remarkably ignorant position to take for a couple of reasons. One, um, there are hundreds, thousands of, of ancient texts describing historical events which we consider to be reliable, which we base our entire knowledge of ancient, ancient history on. All the, the, the books of Greek philosophy, Greek history, Roman philosophy, Roman history, all of those things, um, the earliest manuscripts we have for those books are... The gap between those manuscripts and the events they described can sometimes be several centuries. And we, may, we might be lucky to have one or two manuscripts that are that old. With the Gospels, they're all less than a century after the events in question, and we've got thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. Um, the, the Gospels and... In the Gospels in particular, but, but the whole of the New Testament, these are, without a doubt, the most reliable ancient documents in existence. There's nothing else that even comes close. Um, and while most scholars believe that Matthew is written sometime between 80 and 90 AD, it's also possible it could have been written earlier. We don't really know for sure, but, but that's kind of the, the accepted date. It wouldn't be all that surprising to learn it was written earlier and just wasn't widely circulated for a while. But any, in any case, um, what does seem to be clear is that it was written in response to uh, attempts by the Pharisees to define followers of Jesus as non-Jews. 
And so Matthew tries to prevent this by recognizing and teaching the deep Jewish roots of Jesus himself and of Christian beliefs. And so this is in part why Gospels Matthew mentions the Pharisees so often. Because in reality, during Jesus' lifetime, they probably weren't quite so antagonistic towards him. Uh, because he was actually far closer to them in theology than either of them were to the Sadducees, the temple priests. Both of them talked about the resurrection and the afterlife and angels, and, and all of these things were stuff that were vehemently denied by the temple priests. They didn't believe in an afterlife. The temple priests did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe in a resurrection. They understood all the references to eternal life in the Old Testament being references to uh, you living on through your children and grandchildren and other descendants. Um, that, and that's a big source of conflict in their day and age. You'll see Paul, by the way, in the book of Acts. He, he actually plays on that when he's on trial before a mixed group of Pharisees and, and the temple priests. Um, Paul will play on that. So Jesus is, is closer to the Pharisees than he is to the temple priests. And, and, and in all likelihood, they weren't nearly so antagonistic towards him as we, we tend to think. But that doesn't mean that there was no enmity there. Uh, and that Matthew was not actually talking about real events. It just means he probably plays up the, the role the Pharisees play a, a, a bit more because he wants to highlight some things. Um, so Matthew's gospel, and that, that, by the way, is the reason why it quotes the Old Testament so much more than any of the other gospels because he's trying to really highlight the Jewish roots of Jesus and, and that the ways in which Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies. Uh, this is his attempt to sort of help people understand that the Christians are now the Jews. They're, they're the same people. Um, so we're gonna we're we've got the background now. Let's go into Matthew chapter nine. Now, one thing you should notice here, he calls he's in, in chapter nine verse nine. He's going to call Ma Matthew out of the tax booth to come and be his disciple. One thing I want you to notice is that he calls his disciples. At different times. Uh, Matthew is not called when the other disciples are called. Jesus chooses a time and a place when he knows Matthew will respond. Just as he does, by the way, with Paul. Paul isn't called to serve Jesus until after Jesus is dead. Well, not dead, but dead and then back to life and then ascended to heaven. But you get the point. Um, and I say this because I, there are many people, many of us, have, have people in our lives who we wish desperately would come back to Jesus. Friends, children. And I say this so that we understand that we might have to trust that Jesus is waiting for the right time, choosing his moment, so that when he does call them to him, They'll respond. And so that's just a word of hope for anyone who's wrestling with that. So Jesus calls Matthew, and then Jesus goes and he eats with the sinners. He eats with the tax collectors. And here again, an important lesson. Jesus is not trying to teach them the error of their ways. He's not trying to tell them how vile they are or anything like that. He's just having a meal with them. Now that does not mean that Jesus is fine with sinners going on sinning. He always calls on sinners to change. 
first, he befriends them. He shows them love. He gives them a glimpse at what they are missing out on by continuing in their sin. It's, it's not the way that the church has historically called sinners to repentance. Instead of a fire and brimstone approach, Jesus shows them love and kindness and mercy and says, this is what you're missing out on. I want you to stop sinning because I love you and you can see that I love you. He reserves the fire and brimstone for the religious people who are stepping out of line. So in, in this case, of course, he's eating with a bunch of tax collectors, and no doubt his disciples were, were infuriated and horrified, right? And, and listen, you all would probably be horrified if I had dinner with a bunch of tax collectors. Nobody likes tax collectors. But as I've said before, there, there is a really profound difference between the tax collectors of our day and age who we maybe dislike and are annoyed with and the tax collectors living in Jesus' time who were collaborating with the invading, oppressing Romans. There is no segment of society who is, who is more despised than the tax collectors, and that's who Jesus is eating with. And when, and when his disciples are horrified and infuriated, the, the Pharisees too are horrified and infuriated, and they're asking his disciples, what's going on? Why is he eating with sinners? And Jesus overhears them, and his response is really simple. His response is essentially to say, well, who else do you think I should be with? And there's a rebuke for the Pharisees in, in that statement. I think Jesus is implying really quite strongly that this is their job. That they should have been doing this all along but they were content to disdain the tax collectors and the sinners. He's saying they failed. If, if their job was to teach the people of Israel how to be faithful and holy, which is exactly how they understood their role in society, then they have failed because they were only interested in teaching the people who were already faithful and holy. And so his final comment is, is sarcastic and biting. And he says he's come to call sinners, not the righteous. But the thing is, everyone's a sinner. It's not that there are genuinely righteous people who don't need Jesus. It's that there are people who are so convinced of their own righteousness that they reject Jesus or they ignore Jesus. We in the modern church need to pay close attention to that because we fall into the same trap of being content to be disdainful towards sinners, towards the people doing things that we know are wrong. We're content to judge them, to dislike them, to be contemptuous toward them. And even if we rejoice when a sinner comes to faith, um, 
What do we do with that sinner once they're in our church? All too often, they walk into our church and they don't feel welcome. We have to have the kind of patience that Jesus has. The understanding that someone who is coming to believe in him, to have faith in him, it might take them some time to fully move beyond all of their sinful ways. It might take them some time to figure out how to live as a follower of Jesus. And the best thing we can do is build a relationship with them. Let them learn by example. Have a meal with them. Reassure them that that we love them, that, that God loves them, that God understands they will make mistakes and they will have missteps and that they are on a journey toward perfection, but they aren't there yet and it's okay. Jesus models for us how we bring sinners into the fold. And, and this is where so many people get it wrong. I see conservatives oftentimes assuming that like this one event, all those tax collectors the very next morning were like perfect little Christians. And they never tax collected again. When in reality, they probably all went back to their tax booths the next morning and continued in their job, even as they maybe were a bit uncomfortable with what they were doing and began to wonder how they could, how they could be loyal and faithful to this man who had shown them such kindness and love while continuing in their job. It was a journey. It took them time. While very often progressives go in the opposite direction and say, see, Jesus didn't care what they did. He loved them and he accepted them as they were and there was no issue. And, and you never see Jesus actually doing that. You see him constantly calling on sinners to change. He simply has a degree of patience with them that most of us don't have. He calls on them to change. And then he understands that such change takes time. And he commits to loving them in the midst of that time. That, my friends, that is how we, we call sinners to repentance. That is how we show the love of Christ to the people who need it. We can call on them to change. But only if we are committed to loving them and being patient with them and understanding that changing from a life of sin to a life of righteousness is not an easy or quick process. And I suspect that understanding that also comes along with a deep understanding of our own sin, of our own need for the mercy and forgiveness of God. Moving on into the very next part of chapter 9. Well, not really. We're going to skip a little bit later. Um, Jesus heals this woman, right? Heals the woman with a discharge of blood. All great. Then he heals two blind men and does something really weird. He sternly, it says, uh, you know, and their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. 
Now, of course, they immediately go and start telling everybody what he did, but he warns them not to tell people. And, and this is a really common theme all throughout the Gospels. He keeps he heals people and then tells them, don't tell anybody what I did. Why? Well, this is something that has always kind of intrigued me. The best explanation I've heard for it comes from the, my, one of my favorite theologians, who's N.T. Wright, um, a really, really profound, wise New Testament scholar uh, and, and historian, and, and I love his work. And, and one of the, the, well, not one of the, the explanation he gives for Jesus always telling people not to go tell others what he's done, especially in, because you'll notice it happens especially in the early parts of the Gospels, as his ministry is just beginning. Um, is he's trying to keep his ministry, his activity, quiet. He doesn't want to draw huge crowds yet, and he doesn't want to attract the attention of the authorities yet. He wants to go throughout the Judean countryside, planting these little kingdom seeds, which is of course, that's exactly how he keeps describing the kingdom of heaven, right? He keeps talking about it as seeds being planted and tiny seeds that will one day grow into big plants and seeds being scattered by the side of the roadside. He's, he's telling people what he's doing. He's, he's, he's describing his own activity in those parables, right? He's planting these little seeds everywhere he goes. So that when the time is right, the countryside will be full of people who have met and believed in the Messiah. So we really should wonder how many of the first churches, how many of the, the first communities of Jesus' followers were started by these people he healed. I mean, imagine, imagine you're one of those people, right? You're in this little village somewhere in, in the countryside of, of Judea, and you've had this lifelong affliction. You're blind or, or maimed or paralyzed, which in that society, people tend to assume means you've been cursed by God for something. And then this man comes along, this rabbi, who tells you, your faith has made you well. And he heals you. Now you can see, or you can walk. Now, for the first time in your life, you can be a full participating member of society. you want to now you can get a job you can work you can earn your income you're no longer going to have to be a beggar but that man moves on pretty quickly and, and time goes by you don't hear much about it two three years have passed and then you start to hear about him again the gossip is spreading throughout the towns of this man claiming to be the messiah and he's going to jerusalem he's on his way there and you get all excited because you 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 know, oh my gosh, he must be the Messiah. He's about to go overthrow the Romans. We're going to be free. And I know he's the Messiah because he healed me. And then you hear that he's been arrested and killed. Incredibly, just a few days later, his disciples are telling everybody 
he is alive again. Not he survived the execution attempt. Not, hey, we've seen his spirit wandering around the country. No, no, no. He was dead. And he lives again. And some people are not inclined to believe that story. Some of your neighbors think this is insane. How could you possibly believe that someone who was de dead is alive again? Everyone knows that dead people don't do that. But you, you were blind and now you can see. Because he touched you. You have experienced firsthand the wonders that he works. You have felt the divinity of his presence. And you believe. You believe he is alive again. Because you believe the man who restored your sight. The man who who healed your paralysis, who cast out your demon, you believe that that man, the Son of God, the Messiah, could actually be alive again. And you are so filled with hope and joy and conviction that when your neighbors start saying, these disciples are crazy, they're, they're fools, no one could possibly live again, you say, no. Because I met that man. That's the man who restored my sight. That's the man who healed me. That's the man who cast out the demon. That's the man who gave me hope. And I am telling you, I know he could live again. And your neighbors, the people who've known you all your life, who know perfectly well that you were once blind, or you were once paralyzed, or you were possessed by demons that not even the Pharisees could cast out, those people, they believe you. Because they can't deny what he did for you. And when you tell them that's the same guy, they believe. And so his word of the resurrection spreads, it hits all these little kingdom seeds that Jesus has planted throughout the countryside. And all throughout these little towns and villages, hundreds, maybe thousands of people are coming out of the woodwork, talking about how G that Jesus guy who was killed and who these people are saying he's alive again, that's the one who cured my blindness. That's the one who brought my daughter back to life because remember, he raised the dead. That's the one who cast the demon out of me. And look, if he can cast my demon out, if he can cure my blindness, if he can bring my daughter back from death, I'm pretty sure he could come back to life. You see how it all works together. He, he, went, he tried to keep things as quiet as possible. He planted all these little seeds of the kingdom all around the countryside so that as word of his resurrection spreads... It's like miracle grow on all those seeds. And they start sprouting. 
and they start growing into something incredible. So that's why, that's why he's telling people in the early parts of each of the Gospels, don't, don't go spreading the word about what I'm done, because he wants to get as many of these little seeds planted throughout the countryside as possible. And he knows that once word gets out, once huge crowds are being drawn, that alone will restrict his movement. But once he starts drawing the attention of the authorities, it's, it's time for the end game. He's going to try and do as much ministry, as much seed planting as he can before he draws too much attention. So that's why he tells people, don't go and spread the word about this. Now, we're going to finish up by talking about one particular verse in chapter 10, and that's verse 16. I'm going to read it to you here. This is him as he's sending out the 12 disciples to go and, and spread the gospel. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as a sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. That's the verse. Real short. Be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. I, I think this is one of those verses that we should pause and ponder every time we read it. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. What does that mean for us today? The sheep in the midst of wolves obviously is quite vulnerable. He's sending them out in vulnerability. But I think the more important part of this verse is the bit about being as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. It's that we, we tend to isolate those two things. We tend to separate you know, what we would consider wisdom and innocence, right? We associate innocence with naivety. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You can be wise and crafty and astute and understand the ways of the world. Understand the intricacies of how people are going to behave and understand their craftiness and understand their intentions while also maintaining this incredible innocence. But doing so means that you will probably find yourself at the mercy of the wolves from time to time. That's a way of living we've got to get comfortable with. We have to understand the world and how it works, understand the levers of power, understand the politics and the economics. But we also have to maintain our innocence. And that will mean from time to time putting ourselves in positions of vulnerability and maybe even danger. As far as what that means in our Specific, individualized, I, I, it's hard to say. It will vary from person to person. It's just something to ponder as we go throughout the rest of this week.
That's it for this week, my friends. We'll be back next week with another podcast still on the Gospel of Matthew. Until then, God bless.